We're going to start a new series today. It'll carry us through the spring. We'll pause in the middle um, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ at Easter. But most of our time will be spent psalm by psalm through uh, book four of the psalms. If you need a Bible, um, some of our folks are coming around. It's on page 319 uh, of of the the Bible that's coming around. We're going to start in Psalm 90. We're calling it the looking at God's sovereign kingdom, leaving exile and returning to God. Now, on Friday, we sent out a, a message via our, uh, we use MailChimp to kind of send out regular updates. And so we sent out a message on Friday, posted it to our, our Facebook page um, with a, a little bit of an intro to the series. Uh, some of you received that, perhaps, and you're able to even watch. There's a nine-minute, just under nine-minute video from the Bible Project on the Psalms, which is Excellent. I highly, highly recommend, if you haven't seen that, to go see that. If you don't get those emails or you don't, uh, aren't following our Facebook page, we put information there. That's a great way for you to track with us. But uh, let me give you a quick 30-second confession before I start in on, on all this today. I'm attempting this morning to tackle two things. I'm, att- I'm attempting to tackle both an introduction to the series as a whole and a faithful exposition of the first psalm we'll be looking at in book four, Psalm 90. And each part is still longer than I would like. However, despite my best editing efforts, I'm not sure I can or should cut any more. And maybe you'll disagree with me by the time we're done. Um, but let me just say to you, I love you and buckle up. Let's go through this together. Now, you might be wondering, why, why are we starting in the middle? There's 150 psalms. Why are we starting in, in Psalm 90? And that's on purpose. And I'll explain why. It, it, it might seem to you, and I don't know your experience, I don't know your familiarity with the psalms, but it might seem to you that the psalms are, are a kind of somewhat disorganized collection of prayers and songs. But while the Psalms are comprised of prayers and poetry and song, they are by God's design very intentionally structured. Written by multiple authors over many, many years, these individual prayers, these individual songs um, are were gathered together. They were organized purposefully in order to grow the faith of God's people. Okay? Uh, Many historians and scholars believe that sometime near the end of Israel's captivity in Babylon, sometime uh, maybe in the 550 to 400 or so B.C. range, a a chronicler, uh, someone like an Ezra, or, or a group of faithful members of God's people gathered together the songs and the prayers that had been sung and prayed in the temple and for worship for generations. And they gathered them together and organized them in such a way that gives us what we have now as the 150 chapters of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2, the very beginning, serve as an introduction to the entire book. So I'd urge you this week to to go back and to just read carefully Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And in Psalm 1 and 2, we find an outline of two big themes which run through the entire book. Two primary themes. Uh, The Psalms highlight God's Word 
And the Psalms highlight God's Messiah. When, when, when there's a reference to God's Word in the Old Testament, it's often referring to the Torah. Now, the word Torah in the Hebrew literally just means the teaching. But it's also often understood to be the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the place where God gave instruction and and, and a framework to say, this is what it means to be my people. This is how you live in light of who I am. And God gave that, gave this teaching to his people for their own good. So God's word is this first primary thread throughout all the Psalms. And the second one is God's Messiah. Messiah literally means Savior. And specifically we see in the Psalms a Messianic King, a Savior King. I mean, even a brief reading of the Psalms highlights a particular name. A guy by the name of David who was king in Israel. He was like the pinnacle of all the the good guys, right? David served as king and even authored many of these psalms. He was upright and righteous. And when Israel's strength as a nation and their prominence in the world was at its height, David sat on the throne. And even though he was faithful and a man after God's own heart, and yes, had flaws, David was always just a type. What I mean by that is David's kingly rule was never intended by God to be the end all. Look, we got David, we've finally arrived. No, David was, by God's design, intended to serve as a glimpse, a picture of what a better king, a more righteous king, an eternal king might look like. It was to serve as a glimpse of what God's eternal reign over all the earth would be. So all through the Psalms, we'll continue to pull on these two threads of God's Word and God's Messiah. And we'll see it over and over again as the two primary pieces of what it means to be God's people and what it means to live by faith in God's promises. Now, why book four? You might notice in your Bible, um, in front of chapter one, in front of chapter 42, 73, 90, and 107, there's little headings. Book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4, and book 5. And while they're not completely chronological, which we'll find out today, the progression through the books is very intentional. They're organized that way on purpose. And I'm borrowing these categories and some of the language uh, from a book called The Flow of the Psalms by O. Palmer Robertson. He's, it's a really excellent work. Um, it's, it's deep and academic and very accessible. Um, if you want to read more about the Psalms, um, it's a fantastic resource. And I want to cite my sources. I did not make these up. I'm wholeheartedly stealing them, and I'm giving credit where credit is due. He organizes them this way and kind of gives themes for each of the books. Book 1. Psalm 1 through 41 is focused on um, confrontation. This is the fight and the struggle of David and the people to establish themselves as a kingdom and as a people. Book 2, chapters 42 through 72 is characterized by communication. The work of living amongst other nations. Living as a unique people. Separated out from the rest of the world. Book 3, chapters 73 through 89 shows devastation and highlights 
the downward spiral of sin that ultimately in history leads to Israel's destruction and exile. That's the hard one. In fact, in, in the third book is we have Psalm 88, which is, I would argue, is one of the most depressing psalms because it says, we're broken and hurting and where are you, God? And then it kind of just ends. It's an acknowledgement of the effects of sin and what happens and what comes with destruction. Book 4, which is what we're going to be studying, starting in chapter 90 and going through 106, focuses on the maturing of God's people as they come out of exile. What they thought was God's answer to their desire for a kingdom is now even broader and deeper than they could have possibly imagined. And they're only seeing that now on on the back end of coming out of exile. There's a deepening and a maturing of their faith. And then book five is the the consummation of the book of Psalms, and it's filled with hopeful praise. In fact, the final five chapters of the book of Psalms um, in the Hebrew start and end with hallelujah. They're the hallelujah Psalms, which literally is just a declaration statement that means praise the Lord. So as we prayed about what God might want to teach us from his word in this next season... The book, book four of the Psalms, seemed to kind of rise to the surface for us. Seemed beneficial. Coming through a challenging season as a church, what does it look like for us to look forward with clarity and look forward with hope? That God is still God. That God is still good. And that He is continuing to call us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So our hopes here are are kind of twofold. That we would have a greater understanding of these psalms in light of God's Word God and God's Messiah. That, that these psalms would inform and give words to our prayers as a people collectively and as individuals. And two, that our faith, our belief, what we say we believe, we would believe all the more deeply. And that our vision of what God's kingdom might look like among us would mature so that we would see with more clarity the work to which we're called as God's people here in this place on purpose. So welcome to book four of the Psalms. We're going to lean into the reality of the goodness of God and find our place in his sovereign and eternal kingdom by his grace. With that, let's read our text for the for today. I know I already said uh, it's on uh, page 319, but uh, if you haven't turned there already, Psalm 90... Um, it'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a, a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the inspired and inerrant word of God. May the Lord by his spirit write his word on our hearts. Amen. Now, before we fully jump into Psalm 90, we're going to look at one verse in Psalm 89 as a springboard to give us a little bit of context. So I don't know if in in your Bible, if you need to turn back a page or if it's right there, visible. Psalm 89, verse 46. Closing out Psalm 89, which is the end of book three, the psalmist says this. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like a fire? How long, O Lord? If you recall, the theme of book three is destruction. A little historical context here. The city of Jerusalem and the temple where God's people have worshipped has been destroyed. There is no king on the throne in Israel. And the people have spent a generation in captivity as slaves in a foreign land. All the promises of God to establish and to build and to give His people a place to have a king and a kingdom, all of that is broken. And so we hear this lament, this groaning, how long, O Lord, will we remain here? Maybe you've been there. Right? Can I just give us, as an aside, can I just give us permission to honestly and humbly present these kinds of concerns to God? I think Psalm 89 is giving God's people a little bit of permission, and and us too, to ask God. It's okay to ask God, what are you doing in this? Are you there? I think sometimes we get afraid, like, I don't know if I can say that. I'm going to offend God. I think He's okay. We've all been through terrible things. And that will continue to happen. It's life, right? we'll, We'll talk about that later. But we've all experienced hardship when there's more questions than answers. I've kind of likened it to being in a fog. It's hard to see what's going on. I mean, there's bits and pieces of things that that I can make out, but everything slows way down. And the amount of unknown just overwhelms the known. It's a fog. And in these moments, we ask God, what are you doing in this? And if we're honest, 
And this is where the dangerous part is. Not in the question there. Of God, what are you doing? How long will this be? Help me to understand. I don't think the danger lies there. The danger comes when our hearts then start to get pulled towards asking this question. God, are you even still good? Are you still faithful? And we want to say that we'll answer yes to that question. Right? The Jesus happy Sunday school answer is, yes, God is always good. All the time, God is good. And we want to answer it that way, even in the middle of hardship, when they're in the middle of of a fog. But if we're honest, it's not always easy to answer that way. And even when we do answer that, yes, yes, I believe God is good. I'm telling myself right now, self, God is good. There's, there's still is probably a measure of hesitation in our voice. And that's okay. Let's be honest about that. But here in book four, in Psalm 90, it's almost as if the fog is starting to lift just a little. Visibility has slightly increased. And God's people are able to look forward just a bit. There's a, there's a glimmer, right? And maybe you feel that way too. You've gone through ups and downs. And on the back side of a really hard season, you might not be able to see everything yet, but you can see a little. You have a, you have, you have a little bit of an idea of at least where you are now, even if you don't fully know where you're going. I think as a congregation, we find ourselves here, if I can be honest. We can pray, how, how long, O oh Lord? But when we do, we, we are praying with a sense of confidence that God hears us, that he, that he loves us, and that he actually has an answer to that question. Psalm 90 has something to say to us, I think, coming out of a fog, if you will, to help us answer yes to the question, God, are you faithful? Are you still good? And here's what I think is our help. That our faith in God matures. Our vision of who God is and what He's called us to deepens and matures as we reflect on God's character, as we honestly assess ourselves and the effects of sin on our situation, and as we are renewed in our knowledge that it's God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that sustains us. So we're going to look at Psalm 90 in a a three-step process, if you will, towards a maturing faith. Step one, we see in verses one through six, reflecting on the character of God, who God is, who has he proven himself to be. Step two, we see in verses seven through 12, that there is an honest assessment of who we are, of of what we're going through, of our own situation, of our own sin, our own condition. And step three, verses 13 through 17, is a reorientation of our perspective. A renewal of a sense of, it's by God's grace that we're here. It's by God's grace that we are sustained. It's by God's grace that we move forward. So let's look at the first six verses. Step one is is reflecting on the character of God. Now Psalm 90 is the only psalm attributed to Moses, officially. And that puts Psalm 90 chronologically in the history of God's people as likely one of the first psalms ever penned. I mean, if Moses wrote it, Moses was back here, right? 
And I find it fascinating that the place that we start, remember, book three, coming out of exile, coming out of destruction, into hope, into renewal, and where, where the Psalms go isn't back to the good old days of King David. No, no, the Psalms go all the way back to Moses. The first step towards renewal is like back to the beginning. Not quite the beginning, but closer. I mean, David would be the natural reference, would be the natural anchor point. Life was good under David. When David was king in Israel, there was worship in the temple. The the enemies of Israel ran scared. The livestock were fat. The grain bins were full. These are the proverbial good old days. And in the midst of hardship, it's natural for us to hearken back to some sense of of normal, isn't it? To kind of, we sit here in the midst of like 20 below wind chill, which is warm compared to earlier in the week. And we're like, hey, remember when there was grass and it was was warm? (laughs) Like, it's natural for us to think that way. Like for, and for Israel, David and his earthly reign, it was the pinnacle. It was glorious. But the reality is we can't go back. None of us has access to blue police boxes or 1983 DeLoreans. Like that stuff's stuff of science fiction. We'd like to go back, but we can't. But see, God always intended that he would be the dwelling place of his people. Not a city or a temple or or an earthly kingdom. But all those things were meant to be a reminder, to point to, like, yes, this is good, but it's not the end. Even David was intended to to point God's people to see there's a, a better reality, a more full reality. And I think coming out of this time of trial and exile, they need to be reminded to think back even further where God said, it's me. I will be your dwelling place. So that's why Moses says in 90 verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now if we go back to Deuteronomy 32, what's recorded in Deuteronomy 32 is what's called the Song of Moses. Moses is recounting the work of the Lord, establishing and blessing and disciplining and restoring his people. And in Deuteronomy 33, Moses gives this final blessing. Before all the people enter the promised land, Moses goes up on the mountain. I'd love to talk more about that. We don't have time. We'll talk more about that another time. Um, Moses goes up on the mountain, doesn't go into the promised land. All the people do, but Moses has blessed the people. And listen to verse 5 of Deuteronomy 33. This is what parting words from Moses, the one who saw God face to face. He blesses the people and says this, Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered and all the tribes of Israel together. Moses says the Lord became king. Jeshurun is just the, 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 the poetic name for Israel in Hebrew. So Moses is saying the Lord was king in Israel. The Lord is your king. And then in verse 27 of that same chapter, 
Moses says, the eternal God is your dwelling place. The Lord is your king. The Lord is your dwelling place. The eternal God is your dwelling place. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says it this way. He's kind of playing on the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 8. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in their God and have always done so in all ages. It's important for God's people to be peeled away a little bit from their nostalgia. To be reminded of what is central to who they are as God's people. That God is their king. That God always intended to be their dwelling place forever. Verse 2 of chapter 90 again speaks of God's character. He's before all things. God stands alone outside of time. And even though he is loving towards his creation, even humans who are created in his image, verse 3 says, they are but dust. And to dust they will return. Like a blade of grass that flourishes in the morning and by evening has faded. This is the comparison of who we are to who God is. It's helping them remember. Remember, God is, is different. Now, now we, we, we talked about it already. We, we do remember what grass looks like, right? It might be hard to imagine in February in North Dakota. And maybe I've already, it was already too much of like a, a tease earlier, like, oh, summer. But go with me here for just a moment, Okay. The grass grows wild during the warm months. We spend money to tend it. And then as the cold weather comes, it slowly dies under a blanket of snow, only to start all over again in the spring. The grass is a great picture of the temporary nature of our existence compared to the majesty of God's infinite existence. And it's important for Israel and for us to consider God. To remember who he is and then who we are in light of him. But this isn't just a thought exercise. I, I like living in theory. And maybe some of you do too. But, but how do we practically do this? How do we practically consider God? All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of God called God's people to remember. Over and over and over again. Remember. Remember. Remember when God brought you up out of Egypt. Remember when he parted the Red Sea and millions of people walked to safety on dry land. Remember when the walls of Jericho crumbled even though you didn't lift a finger. Remember when God routed your enemies in front of you and established you in a place. So for us, I think we need to engage in active remembering. Maybe it looks like this. Remember when God brought that one person to encourage you? That one person who sat with you in the dark and just loved you. Remember? God did that. Remember when God provided to the dollar what you needed for that repair bill? For that 
invoice for that rent check? Remember, when God provided exactly what you needed, God did that. Remember when you found comfort and felt peace and and even a glimmer of hope in the midst of a terrible, terrible tragedy, in the midst of terrible loss, yet you were comforted. God reminded you in that moment of His nearness to you. God did that. These are practical things that we preach to ourselves and and to one another. And they're the first step toward a deeper and more enduring faith. A first step towards actually believing. Yeah, okay, God. You're good. Yes, you're still good. So the first step is remembering and considering God's character, what God has proven himself to be over and over and over again. That's step one. Step two, we find in verses 7 through 12, an honest assessment of suffering, death, judgment, and that comes as a result of sin. It's one thing for us, excuse me, It's one thing for us to recognize the temporary nature of our lives. Like, that's easy. We're transient. Our lives are short. Death eventually comes for us all. You're pretty cynical really quick if you stay there. But actually, death is rooted in a bigger problem. And that's sin. See, verses 7 and 8 kind of sound like a, a, a group confession. The sins of God's people are on display We are brought to an end by your anger. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There's no hiding of sin here. There's no covering it up. There's no excuses being made. Moses isn't like, well, we weren't that bad. We've suffered enough, Lord. No, no. Our secret sins are exposed in the light of your presence. Nothing is hidden. There's confession. Verses 9 and 10 are this contrast. Moses goes on, All our days pass away under your wrath. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is toil and trouble. Our days pass away like a sigh. Again, this could be kind of depressing. 70 years. Like in the span of eternity, 70 years. Or maybe... Maybe if we eat really healthy and we exercise 80 years. That's kind of what he's saying. Even if we could fight out 10 more years, even those are just marked by toil and trouble. They're soon gone. And so comparatively to God, who alone created all things and sustains all things, compared to God, it's virtually nothing. There's an acknowledgement of the fleeting nature of life in a world marred by sin. It's acknowledging that as sin entered through our first parents, and from that point forward, the motto for humanity on their own without God is, life is hard, then you die. That's kind of what verses 9 and 10 are getting at. All the years are really nothing. They're just filled with toil and trouble and then we fly away. Verse 11, Moses asks another question. 
Who considers the power of your anger? And this is where sin comes in. Are we honest about the hatred that God has for sin? See, Moses looks at suffering and looks, look at, looks back at the, the, the turmoil of God's people. From this point in history, reading Psalm 90, back into exile from Babylon, Moses is looking back at God's people stuck in Egypt. There's a pattern here, by the way. And Moses looks at exile and suffering and he doesn't say, gee, there must be something wrong with God. No, he's not questioning God's righteousness. Like, God should be angry at sin. God is right to execute judgment. He's right to exile his people who have abandoned him. No, Moses looks internally and says, what's happening here? What's going on here? Now, let me be clear. Not all suffering we experience is a result of our personal sin. Can I be really clear on that? Not all the suffering and hardship we experience is a result of like, Grant, your life is really hard right now. There must be some personal sin you've got to dig out. I'm not saying that. Thanks for letting me use you as an example. Danger of sitting in the front row. Don't let that scare you. But what I am saying is this. All the suffering and heartache that we experience, all of it, is because sin has fractured all creation. We taste the sting even though the sting is now removed by Christ in his resurrection. But we, the, the reason death and hardship is still bitter in our mouths is because it's a reminder for us that this sin is bitter. So when Moses says in verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He's he's asking, God, help us to put all of this mess in perspective. Wisdom that comes from the fear of a holy God. That's where wisdom begins. And wisdom that comes to the right perspective of our circumstances. That's Moses' prayer. If this is who you are, God, and this is the reality of how we got to where we are, We want to fear you and we want to rightly understand how we got here. God, give us wisdom. And so there are two points of application for me that come out of this section. One, what does it look like to actually number our days? Can we see beyond just the moment? That's tough for me sometimes. I can get stuck right where I'm at. Walking around it again and again. Trying to figure it out. There's a challenge here to not let our eyes remain fixated on our hardships, on our circumstances. But asking, God, give me a picture of what's going on in light of eternity. Numbering our days isn't just acknowledging that our lives are short. But it's acknowledging that God has rightly ordained every day of our lives before one of them came to be which is told to us in Psalm 139. And we consider our circumstances in light of God's sovereign rule and His goodness. Two, so one, what does it look like to number our days? Two, 
the reality of acknowledging that sin is exposed in the light of God's presence. We agree with Moses that nothing is hidden from God. So we freely confess our sin. We freely, openly walk in repentance. It's one of the reasons we take communion here weekly at River City. We want to walk in confession because we know that nothing's hidden. And so walking in the light, as 1 John tells us, it's in walking in the light, in the exposure of the light of God, that we can have fellowship with God and that we can have fellowship with one another. So we confess our sin. Step one, we consider the character of God, his track record of faithfulness. Step two, towards a maturing hope, is we, we rightly assess our situation and ourselves. And this is where this Old Testament psalm starts to, if, maybe you don't like this word, um, but I really do, this is where the Old Testament psalm starts to ooze gospel hope. My wife told me if there's any way I can start, insert ooze into more sermons, I should. I said, I don't really know about that. But it fits here. Because here we start to see grace start to like ooze. It starts to squeak out of the cracks of what we see, the, the prayers that come next. So step three is we look to the grace of God to both save us and sustain us. In verses 13 through 17, there's a five-part request. Five kind of petitions that, that Moses prays. And these are significant. And I would argue that these five prayers, these five requests, are, are equivalent to Moses saying yes to the question, is God faithful? Yes. You don't pray these things if you do not believe that God will answer. If you don't actually think that God is good, if you don't actually think that God is faithful, then you don't pray these. And for us, we have all over the New Testament as well, gospel fuel for these same prayers. So let's, let's look at them. There's some, some, some parallels and some other references we're going to mix in. Verse 13, Moses echoes what is prayed. He says the same thing that we read in Psalm 89, where he's asking, how long? Except for it started with return. Come back and save us. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. This sounds a lot like what Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 32. And man, there's so much fantastic. We just don't have time to talk more about Moses and and. Uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and the whole thing, uh, another, another day. Um, in Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain actually receiving from God the Ten Commandments. And, and the people are getting impatient. And they're like, we don't know what to do. So let's melt on all our jewelry and, and turn it into a cow and then worship it. Because that seems logical. And God says, Moses, do you, do you know what the people are doing? right now. And Moses is like, oh my gosh. And he pleads with God. God, have, have mercy. Have mercy. Be merciful on these foolish, foolish people. We are in desperate need of you. Clearly, we are in desperate need of you. That's what Moses prays in Exodus 32. And there's an echo of that here. Have pity. Be merciful. Relent. Don't destroy us. And we agree with Moses. 
that it is the mercy of God to save sinners. Titus 3, Paul says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. God saves. He does save according to His own mercy. Verse 14, Moses prays, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us. Fulfill us. What will satisfy? The the steadfast covenant love of God. The love of God in Christ Jesus is enough for us and is the source of lasting joy. See, we might fear God. We might number our days, but if we do not also find fullness of joy, if there is not rejoicing in who God is, in what He's done for us in Christ Jesus, then I think our faith is underdeveloped. Romans 5 says that God showed His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? The love of God for you in Christ Jesus is enough. Is it a source of joy and hope? Verse 15, Moses prays, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Now this one is huge. Notice where Moses attributes affliction. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Moses is surrendering to God's sovereign hand. He's already acknowledged why they are where they are. But he's he's surrendering to God's sovereign hand and saying, Would you now restore what has been lost? Would you restore what you have torn down? Would you rebuild it, please? That's gutsy. God, would you bring fruit again from ground that has been made barren? Only God brings life from death. That's a gutsy prayer. 1 Peter 5, Peter says, After you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish you. Verse 16. Moses prays, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Show off, God. In the midst of the brokenness of this world, would you give us a glimpse of your kingdom on earth? To see you at work. Colossians 1, Paul says that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is showing off when He's displaying mercy in rescuing sinners. When He's, when he's growing and using weak and broken vessels to bring hope 
and the gospel to other places, he is showing off his work. In verse 17, the last of the petitions, Moses says, And let the favor of the Lord God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This isn't Moses just praying, God, bless our endeavors. No. Moses is praying, don't let our labor be in vain. Establish our work. Find us useful in your kingdom. And as Paul says in Ephesians, him, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. See, what we're seeing here in the prayers of God's people, they've been reshaped and reprioritize. What starts in Psalm 89 as how much longer, O Lord, has now matured into hopeful prayers for God to encourage, for God to equip, for God to build up that he might find us useful in his service. See, if God isn't faithful, if the answer to the question, God, are you still good? If that answer isn't yes, then these requests make no sense. So for us, there is a reshaping of our prayers as well. How have your prayers been reshaped by remembering God's faithfulness? As we walk in humble confession, are your prayers different? By God's grace, and only by His grace, our prayers are proof that yes, We believe that God is good, that God is faithful. And that's where I think Psalm 90 is is starting us down this path, that our faith in God matures as we reflect on the character of God, as we honestly assess ourselves, the effects of sin, and as we are renewed in our knowledge that it is the grace of God that saves us and sustains us. Amen and amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in your mercy, at the right time, you extended grace and mercy to a lost and wayward people to make us sons and daughters. We confess there are many things, even today, going on around us And we have no idea what you're up to. That there are many in this room who even today are are struggling to see, God, where are you in this? And so would you reorder and reprioritize our prayers in light of who you are? For some of us, help us to remember even just one reminder of your faithfulness, of your kindness. Would you bring about, in light of who you are, faithful and honest confession of sin, 
that we might walk in forgiveness. And would you renew would you renew our faith? We love you. We are grateful for your kindness to us, your patience. Renew our vision of you and encourage our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.